Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Nance, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a Reading Revolution installment, which I'll get into momentarily. But first, I just want to remind everyone to please follow us on social media by, by excuse me, searching for at Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spreaker, um, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. But you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. Again, patreon.com slash leftpoc, where you can donate a dollar or more per month to help us stay afloat here at the podcast and project. Um, we're doing a lot of different things besides just podcasting, of course. So be sure to check all of that out. And you can find all of it, including nice goodies to read and uh, learn more about on the Patreon page. Oh, and just as a reminder, of course, everything on the Patreon page and every bit of content from this project is free. That's on purpose. Uh, But your donations, as you can make them, definitely help us do that. Um, And just as another reminder, I always pay our guests to give them a remuneration um, as well as make a donation in their honor for a local organization or um, group of their choice. And then also, um, I pay Richard, who is my co-host. So everybody gets a fair cut around here, and uh, your donations help keep that happening. Uh, The other thing I just wanted to mention as well, just as a reminder, and I'll have yet another reminder within the actual episode, um, but if you are yourself in financial need or know someone who's in financial need and you need high-grade N95 masks, um, I am still doing the mask project. I have a lot of masks to go out. Um, Just as a reminder, I get you know, um, certified NIOSH approved 3M N95 masks, which are like the gold standard Mercedes Benz Rolls Royce, if you will, uh, to use capitalist terms of N95 masks. So I'm, I'm packing those up. I'm sending them out to folks and, um, just to make sure that everyone has access to these things and has them for free. I don't think that it's something that people should be struggling over or fighting one another for or having trouble finding. Uh, so I just, took it on myself to start uh, sending these things out. And I had been doing this a little bit um, before the CDC announcement, like last year and even in 2020, I had been sending out packets here and there of N95s um, when I had them in bulk or um, in excess. And also I was sending out KN95s at that time as well um, and KF94s. Right now I'm sending out exclusively N95s by 3M and um, they are from certified distributors that have direct sales licensing from 3M. Um, so they're the real deal. And I just want to make sure that everyone can, everyone that needs one can have one and that they shouldn't be restricted from you just because you don't necessarily have the financial means or you can't find them where you live, because I know that's also been a problem lately with the recent demand. Um, just as a reminder on that, I keep giving all these reminders, so I'm sorry to keep using that word. Um, but The CDC announcement to have everyone start wearing these high-grade masks is really long overdue. It's something that I've been doing since 2020. I know some many other people have been doing it well before I even started doing it um, because it's it's like advised. It's necessary. Um, It's something that epidemiologists have been kind of pushing for a long time that the federal government had not announced. Um, And I guess just 
they were worried about supply in the beginning of the pandemic. And then later on, I guess they just kind of forgot to update that. So uh, yeah, cloth masks are not enough, never have been enough uh, to fight this pandemic and to protect yourselves and others. Uh, so now's the time if you haven't already been able to get one in the past, um, please, please, please reach out to me. You can DM me on my personal account and that's at Muse Wendy, M-U-S-E-W-E-N-D-I. Make sure you spell my name right or it'll go to like a bot that took over my old account. Um, <laughs> like my very old account from like 2009 or something. Um, so anyway, again, that's at Muse Wendy, M-U-S-E. W-E-N-D-I. If you DM me, if you're in financial need and you need an N95 mask packet, uh, do that and I will send you one for free. I ship them out um, every couple of days. And then I also have been making donations to local organizations here in Baltimore um, for slightly larger orders. So if you are part of such an organization, you run an organization or you know of an organization like that here in the Baltimore area, specifically Baltimore City preferably, um, that needs in 95 packets for the cust like the not customers but the community members that they serve and or the workers and volunteers please let me know get in touch with me via twitter okay so now that all of that is out of the way um i wanted to give you all a bit of information about bell hooks who is the focus of the reading revolution discussion from today we actually recorded this last week but i'm just really late in getting around to doing the this intro because i've been really busy um also, I should say before I get to that, that um, to please check out the show notes because I have some posts of her writings um, that I think are great and that everyone should check out. And I also have the audio recording that I did of her essay as well as the essay itself, um, the print version. So you can check out either one, whichever way is easiest for you to digest um, these sorts of essays and things like that. So you pick one, you either do the audio or you do the written version. Um, it's up to you, but those are both available below. All right, so this is information about Bell Hooks. Feminist, activist, thinker, and writer Gloria Jean Watkins, better known as Bell Hooks, a pen name she took for herself after her great-grandmother, was born September 25, 1952. She was raised in Hopkinsville, excuse me, Kentucky, a highly segregated small southern town. She grew up working class. Her mother was a maid and her father was a janitor. And the racism and economic inequality she faced greatly influenced her leftist politics. She went on to get a BA and an MA in English at Stanford University and the University of Wisconsin, respectively, and became a prolific writer of books, essays, articles, and cultural criticism, as well as a professor. Her written and community work blended feminist, anti-racist, and anti-capitalist ideologies, sometimes putting her at odds with other thinkers in a variety of activist communities who disregarded one aspect of race, class, or gender as they intersected. Despite her humble beginnings, or perhaps because of them, Hooks became one of the most influential and pivotal Black American feminists of our time. She died at the end of last year, December 15, 2021 to be exact. But as her use of lowercase in the first letters of her name are meant to remind us, her words, her contributions to the world are much bigger than herself. So with that said, I want to get this um, episode started. Richard and I discuss her essay, Love as the Practice of Freedom, which again, you can find in the show notes in both audio and print form. So with that said, please enjoy the episode and also feel free to send us any questions you may have. You can find us on Twitter at LeftPOC. Um, I run the Twitter account, so you'll have direct access to me if you do have questions or things you would like to add along with this essay um, and discussion. So please feel free to reach out. Anyway, on with the episode.
Okay, so today we're talking about Bell Hooks's piece about love, which I actually read, uh, like I did the vocal, <laughs> vocal books on tape version of it for the one of the Podmist episodes back in December um, or early January. I can't remember. I think December. Yeah, um, but this was this was one of the readings that I found, you know, after she died, and I thought it was appropriate because you and I have talked frequently about you know, where's the place of love in revolutionary acts and is love itself revolutionary in some way? Or can we think of love as like a key element of revolution um, and of just kind of like leftist movements in general, right? Because I think we have this tendency to see them as um, violent or, uh, but obviously for the sake of freedom, right? It's not just like aimless violence, but we see, we see struggle as violent. We see struggle as armed and we see struggle as something that's really rooted in not only praxis, but like the intellectual side, right? Like people engaging in theory and learning and reading and whatever, but then the care element, whether it's personal or towards the community sometimes falls out of that discussion. And so I think her reading, um, is important for thinking about that and where that element of love fits into larger discussions about revolution and attaining freedom. Um, so that's just a sort of an overview. She kind of touches on different um, aspects of history, including the Black Panthers, which is a section that I definitely want to talk about. Lots of questions on that. Um, she even mentions Cornell West. She has like a quote from him and they were actually friends. Um, and she talks a bit about religion as well and its place or political movements and their place um, in creating a sense of community and love within that community. So there's a lot, a lot going on in this piece. And I think it's worth, um, I don't know, I just thought it was a good piece to discuss. Uh, so yeah, why don't we start actually with some of your initial thoughts um, and then we can do kind of a breakdown by every few paragraphs or so. Uh, thank you again. Uh, I think uh, for me, one of the kind of important aspects of this is, as you mentioned, that revolutionary or revolution is often thought of as bloody and violent and uh, those aspects of revolutionary struggle. But oftentimes, both uh, in the conversation at large and in, I think, in our own, like in people's own personal lives, uh, the the care aspect and what love means in a societal sense as well as the uh, interpersonal sense is uh, kind of left out or lost in all of the milieu that is going on uh, in the constant struggles that we see uh, throughout the country and the world at large. And so I think it's great for us to be able to have something like this to look at in that really kind of keys in on what I is a lost aspect and I think it starts right off there, but uh, that's just kind of my initial thoughts. Yeah. And I think too, like I had some questions just thinking about her framing of love, because I don't know if I got a full understanding of what her definition of love is, which might be worth discussing as well. Um, and I think too, you know, one of the things that at least I was left with in reading it was kind of asking like, is there an element of love in the dominance, in the violence, because it has roots that are geared towards um, delivering freedom for a people, right? Is that in and of itself? And also there are all these questions that kind of go on in the back of my mind about like, is love kind of a Western concept or at least the way we think of love now? Are there aspects of it that are rooted in capitalism and 
Western philosophies and whatnot? And the answer is yes, of course. Um, but there, I, I don't know, it kind of, it made me think about not just the, what she was presenting, but also the meaning of love and whether or not how she defines the, like the way she kind of posits love as counter to domination and counter to violence and counter to sort of like aggression of sorts, if that is in and of itself a problem, right? So this is something we can kind of talk about later too. We don't have to deal with it now. Um, but that's something that I was asking myself as I read it, like how, what is love? You know, if we're saying that um, it's missing from progressive circles or it's missing from these movements and the acts of liberation that we see as so prevalent in our histories, what is it that is love? And how are, who, who gets to define that? Who is enacting it? And maybe a better thing to ask is like, what's an example of love being used and put to use in this revolutionary way that she's asking for us to engage? Well, uh, definitely. And I just wanted to mention also that it was a very prolific author and had tons of text. And this also inspired me to like look out and like I had basically the same question you had. and definitely went and looked at some of her other writings to try and get some uh some bearing on it because i my familiarity is uh, unfortunately and somewhat embarrassingly uh lower than i would like with bell hooks and the her scholarship and work is i think i've the what i realized after looking into it is that i have encountered it through other folks uh, and i have heard a lot of what she expresses in uh, a variety of other feminist uh, authors and so on and so forth and so like what love is and what she means by love i think is a, an important part and this particular piece probably doesn't do as much of the defining as uh, i think would be possibly helpful but uh, I, it does touch on it a bit yeah i think that's important to point out too because i like richard I'm, I'm with you on that i don't know a ton about her work. I've, I relatively am familiar with her as a person. I'm familiar with some of the controversies around what she said as well. Um, but I'm less familiar with her actual body of work. I've read bits and pieces of things that she's written in the past. Um, I started with one of her books a while back and just never got around to finishing it. But I do think that, I mean, one thing that I really like about her work and including, you know, including this piece in that is that it's very clear, like, reading this was very clear and easy to read. It was something that I think anyone can pick up and understand, you know, relatively easy. Um, there are some parts where like, maybe you may have some questions or whatever about the historical references and whatnot, but it is very clear. And I appreciate that. And think, you know, I'm kind of, I know I'm like hitting a, you know, what is it like beating a dead horse about this, but I always say this, like, I feel like for every reading revolution piece that we do, but like, it's really important actually to be accessible to everyone. And when I say that, I don't mean that like people who don't have a PhD or something can't interpret, you know, complicated writing, but like, why write in a convoluted way? Why not just be clear and straightforward? And that way, anyone of any level, and even if you have a higher level and you don't like wading through that sort of stuff like myself, it just makes it much easier to read and much easier, I think, too, to proliferate your ideas, right? Like, if something is clear on the from the jump, you don't have to worry about people getting your ideas twisted up. And you don't have to worry about people not understanding what you're saying when they're trying to explain it to others. Like it's going to be very easy to understand and explain. Um, so while we're talking about that, let's kind of dig into it a bit. Um, I think we can start with the first few paragraphs, actually. Um, you know, this part I mentioned already, 
But I think this line is helpful where she says, the absence of a sustained focus on love in progressive circles arises from a collective failure to acknowledge the needs of the spirit and an overdetermined emphasis on material concerns. Without love, our efforts to liberate ourselves and our world community from oppression and exploitation are doomed. And so like, I thought that was interesting because, you know, we have, she says that we have an overdetermined emphasis on material concerns, but at the same time, I'm like, that's really important, right? Like the, (laughs) (laughs) the material concerns, like if people don't eat, if people don't have a place to live, if people don't have um, their basic needs met, how can we start talking about these somewhat loftier goals of, of love? And I guess maybe I would answer that by saying that the act of providing those basic needs and making sure that they're met is the act of love from, from the start. Right. But she seems to sort of separate the two and, I don't know if you read that and thought the same way I did mm-hmm. give some feedback, but I kind of was confused by that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with what you said. And I think from what I, the, the separation that I think she makes from, and this is part from, again, I had to dive in and <clears throat> get more familiar with her generally. And from an interview essentially is that <clears throat> love is distinct from care. And so those material concerns would fall under care. And while love is a kind of a, uh, is, is a bigger concept than the quote that it's not in this text, but I think it's uh, helpful for us going forward as, a, as what she's thinking of uh, love meaning is, quote, love is a combination of care, commitment, knowledge, responsibility, respect, and trust. And so with that, I think we have a more kind of holistic understanding of what she's trying to encompass with love and that and and the delineation of kind of care and uh, like I would put the material needs under that care aspect, but then it, it leaves us with commitment, knowledge, responsibility, respect, and trust that still needs to be fulfilled that material conditions in and of themselves are, uh, leave lacking, I think. Yeah, I think that's good. That I really appreciate that you inserted the way she defines it there, because that's obviously something that, as you said, we don't get in this piece fully. Um, But I think, and I guess also when she talks about the material concerns, it could just be like, she means, you know, the daily logistics of activism or progressive politics or whatever, right? Like the voting and the putting stuff in boxes and like getting this shipment there and like getting the center, you know, nailed down as an event space and, you know, just like the daily sort of quotidian Mm -hmm. everyday things that you have to do as material, but not necessarily material concerns in the sense of like basic needs, right. As a new, a different way of reading it. Um, But I think, you know, that and our subsequent commentary that she has in this next, um, next paragraph, it's, it's interesting to me that, and I think, warranted what she's saying about some of these spaces lacking that and I know we've you and I you and I've touched on this before and also in another recording I did um with one of the earliest guests we had um San it was like episode four or something and she's a huge Bell Hooks fan but we talked about this right where like there are many aspects of leftism where people feel it seems like people are really motivated by what they're doing but sometimes they're not doing it out of like concern for people or care or love for people it's almost just like they're doing it because they feel like they should be leftists right or like they feel they they read a bunch of marks and they liked it and that's why they chose to be some 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 element of a left right um 
and they're not necessarily motivated for care, concern, respect, et cetera, of other people. And I think that's where I would agree with her in that people do get lost in that. I think people get so much so lost in like the concepts and and what they're doing on the surface and they don't necessarily interrogate the why, right? It's like right now it's kind of in vogue to be against the Democrats or whatever, which is understandable because they're messing up constantly and they're not really, they're not at all looking out for people's best interest and covering their basic needs. But sometimes you wonder like, are you a mad at the Democrats because you just, it's just something to do. It's something that everyone else is doing who's on the left. And that's why you're compelled to do that. Or are you doing it because you actually understand like, it's not, it's not just a sport, right? It's like an actual, you have to lob an actual criticism at these people and it's warranted. And I don't know what I'm saying fully, but I feel like there's a certain element of left that I see. Um, and maybe it's just like something that's very indicative of my being involved in online spaces, but there tends to be this kind of, it's almost like a team or factions. And some of that's motivated by just being on the right team more than it seems to be motivated by care for the people who are actually suffering and concern about their needs not being met. Yeah, very much a kind of like a good guys versus bad guys uh, framing in a lot of people's minds in which they just want to be on the good guys team rather than be on the bad guys team, but aren't doing the type of interrogation that you describe about understanding what what is good about this other team, or is there is this other team actually good, or like what what is entailed in this kind of framing generally. And I think a lot of it is, uh, and it mentions in this piece too, about very kind of a self-centered focus about uh, changing the way that you like, you personally exist in the society and how you, you feel your relationship is to the society and not so much about like what the society itself is embracing or uh, reforming as a result or is aided in by your participation in the society as it exists. And I think too, so even like, in that uh, next line, I'm sorry, she has this next line too. That's like, it's like a paragraph or two down paragraph down where she's like, basically if we don't, include love if we keep everything at like the surface level right it kind of goes back to what i was saying she's like if we keep it there then we end up becoming like we end up reifying and she says engaging in a continued allegiance to systems of domination imperialism sexism racism classism and it's so true like I, that's why i'm always so critical of what i see in these like quote unquote you know online left spaces or whatever because i think that's exactly why like I'm frustrated by it because it is a, you see a, a copy paste almost of sexism, of racism, of classism, of people who are elites who are operating in ways that are harmful to those below them economically or whatever, right? Um, and I think that there's also even something that I constantly comment on and I'm frustrated by, but that you mentioned as well, this sort of self-centeredness um, where the focus becomes not the message of the person, but the person, right? And like sending money to this person and following the show of this person as opposed to, or people, as opposed to like really listening to what they're saying and engaging their message and whether or not their message is actually, you know, towards helping the community or bettering the community, or if it's just toward being loud and angry so that you get Patreon dollars, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I mean, it's sometimes I feel like it's harder to see the when it's closer to you politically. So I think for some people, 
the manifestation of this that is easier to see is a lot of the anti-Trump rhetoric that is focused on reinforcing a lot of the, the isms and, and bad thing, like bad tendencies in our society, you know, whether it's being fat phobic or uh, being uh, like uh, uh, offensive to disabled people or homophobic or a variety of other isms and phobias that are just when they people feel like by aiming them at Trump, somehow that makes it okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember explicitly when they had all this stuff of him, like kissing Putin and then the naked Trumps that were popping up everywhere. And even like the stuff about Ivanka, that was kind of weird. Like she was an immigrant or whatever. And I get the, the point was like to be hip, just point out his hypocrisy. But as you said, it sort of ended up making those of us who are not skinny or who may not be citizens or who may be gay or whatever kind of looking at and going okay so are you using that identity as an insult like is that what is the problem for you and not the other stuff he's doing you know yeah and so and i think we can see that reflected in uh, when we look look further to the left and we see like uh bell and you highlighted about the the reinforcing the systems of domination and hierarchical kind of controls and reinforcing capitalistic structures and all these types of things that were that is just part of uh i guess reflecting society back at itself in ways and through our even on the left's behavior and in, in ways that isn't being critically interrogated in such a way that we recognize, oh, you know, maybe, you know, doing this because I think it's going to generate more revenue and that's why I'm doing it. Maybe I need to interrogate that a little further. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a huge problem in general, but certainly um, it, it, what's interesting to me is that it, it's, as she says, you know, it helps us, it makes it much easier for us to fall into these traps of domination, right? And one of them being, capitalism I mean, she doesn't list capitalism here but it's one that i would say people definitely it's a trap people fall into when they're not focused on actually doing it for some real reason and they're just doing it because they want to make money um and i think unfortunately like it ends up being the motivating factor because you'll see people like leaving their day jobs or doing whatever because they get a little money on youtube but then they become they have to satisfy the audience that's paying them. So even if they're alternative media and they're not like satisfying, you know, GE or something, right? Like in weapons industry people or something, they're still meeting a demand that is fueled by people who might have reactionary views. And if they notice that they get the most clicks on like reactionary type videos, they're going to keep making those because they want the money, even if they may not need it, but they want it. Um, But I think, you know, I I don't know if even by the way she defines it, if love is enough to counter that because love ultimately doesn't pay. Um, And I think compassion and respect and these things don't necessarily like you see it so much, right. Where there will be people who are doing the right thing and engaging in a way that's more humane and clearly people focused and things like that. And they don't always win and they actually fail a lot. Right. Um, And it makes you wonder, you know, is, is that enough? I just wanted to add too that I think, you know, later on in that paragraph and then a little bit further down, uh, we're going into page two right now, but she talks about something that's very familiar to all of us, which is this idea that, you know, um, we have so many blind spots and we have 
people who are, let's say, feminists, um, who are racist towards Black women, and we have people who are um, anti-racist or like, you know, revolutionary leaders, revolutionary Black leaders who are male, as she points out, who may be sexist towards women, et cetera. So there are all these sorts of moments where like, she argues that if we have a love ethic as the priority, as the center, then people will not fall into these traps of like, that are set by our society and they won't, or hopefully won't, um, you know, I guess reinstate them within their revolutionary communities or revolutionary acts. And again, I think a lot of this sounds nice, but I wonder on the, maybe I'm focused too much on material concerns, but like, (laughs) how do we, how do we put this into practice she, she, and you know, I guess it's fitting too. like Martin Luther King day is tomorrow, but um, she talks about Martin Luther King and the way that he enabled or he engaged love in his, in his activism. And I just, I don't know if it's enough and I don't know if it's always a surefire way to prevent those things, because arguably, you know, the people working with Martin Luther King were also engaged in acts of perhaps sexism and certainly you know anti-lgbt stuff that was popular during the day etc so it it makes you wonder like i don't know is it enough and maybe i don't i I guess i'm leaning towards a no but i'm happy to be convinced otherwise yeah i mean i think it's a it's a important question about whether it's enough and i i'm not sure that it is but i do agree that it is necessary that like the that the rooting having a love ethic at the core of the kind of formation of where the rest of your revolutionary uh, kind of thinking comes from, I think is important and critical and does help if not completely eliminate the possibility. It does, uh, it does reduce the possibility of falling into those traps, I think. And I think the, I, I agree both, uh, temporally when it was written and I think it's just as applicable now that this is missing from left the left space generally and that uh, it's that what the the left is missing from the United States generally so I guess I gotta be careful with that but uh, (laughs) (laughs) like uh, it's a it's an important aspect and I think it's like I think it's stands well as an organizing principle an organizing ethic rather than uh in it uh, like complete in and of itself i don't think that yeah. love by itself is is enough but i do agree with the kind of notion that without it you're not going to reach liberation like you can't you you can't be liberated without the love so like, right it's like it a goal it's a goal as opposed mm-hmm. to a, something that we we have like we can touch you know mm-hmm and I think like uh, one of the other aspects is like with Martin or with MLK Jr. in general, like that one, like, I'm, I'm reminded of Kwame Torre, but then I've also since been doing more research and found some random transphobic comments from him that were like possibly largely related to the time period, but also just mm. caused me concern, but like reflected this kind of contention between this love ethic and uh, a more radical revolutionary ethic and what i'm reminded of is when he said that you know about the quote about america having no conscience is like this love ethic understanding that i think uh, is somewhat portrayed in this piece is uh, somewhat dependent on that as the idea that somewhere in america's core is 
a conscience like and i think that the the historical like what we saw out of the 60s and what like what happened to the radicals of those times and since then uh calls into question like how this love ethic interacts with uh such a cruel and domineering uh, entity as the united states as an institution yeah i think that's a really good question because you don't it, if you're talking about like an imbalance of power, right? Like the US and its institutions are definitely on the, the winning end, right? Like it's kind of, and then you have things like, how do you, how do you push with that love if you're hitting against these institutions constantly? And can you meet, like, should your response to those institutions meet it with the coldness and calculate? Sometimes I, like, I, I guess my point is like, sometimes I wish that the left were more cold and calculated and like ruthless um because the institutions that they're trying to counter are are that you know um and if if we were able to be more cutthroat and more um aggressive would that perhaps save us and allow us to then implement the love ethic right like it sometimes I'm, it's like a like a chicken egg situation is it possible to lead with the ruthlessness and lead with the coldness and lead with what seems to match the institutions. And then once we reach a point where we have something or some semblance of an ideal, do we then implement that? Or is it just gonna be too far gone and we've been ruthless for like Machiavellian for too long to then come Mm. back to a love ethic? It's something that I was also asking myself as I read this. And I think the part for me that really stood out as like a, I have some questions about, again, I, I keep asking questions, but this is kind of like how I've been thinking through the piece is like, I'm also interested in her, um, her idea of manhood and womanhood. Um, and if I skip over something and you want to go back to something else, like feel free to do that, but it's just on my mind right now. Um, mm-hmm. But I noticed that she has this paragraph on page two still, uh, where she talks about the Black Panthers and the Black Power movement. Um, she doesn't name the Black Panthers, I don't think, but she says the Black Power movement. So, you know, you, you're left to believe that it's primarily Black Panthers she's talking about. Um, and she says that, quote, the 60s Black Power movement shifted away from that love ethic. This, the emphasis was now more on power. It is not surprising that the sexism that had always undermined the um, black liberation struggle intensified that a misogynist approach to women became central as the equation of freedom with patriarchal manhood became a norm among black political leaders, almost all of whom were male. Indeed, the new militancy of masculinist black power equated love with weakness, announcing that the quintessential expression of freedom would be the willingness to coerce, do violence, terrorize, indeed utilize the weapons of domination. This is the crudest embodiment of Malcolm X's bold credo, quote, by any means necessary, end quote. And, you know, I don't know if I agree with her. Um, And I could, it could just be that, like, from my understanding of the Black Power movement, you know, maybe I'm reading portrayals that are a little bit softer um, and they're made softer with some distance, right? Like she's writing as someone who lived through it and who's probably much better equipped to speak to what she saw. And I, I don't doubt what she's saying. You know, I am sure that, because I experienced it even in this in the present, right? Where there were people who were in behaving in sexist ways and things like that. And as she remarks on above, you know, like with regard to white, feminists engaging in in racist ways towards black women and and classist ways towards poor women etc um 
But I wonder if her discussion here is overlooking in some way, despite its attempts to kind of, uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is she setting up a false dichotomy that maybe was not there about women versus men in these groups, despite the fact that like there were actually so many black women leaders within the black power movement and maybe they don't get the recognition that they deserve, of course, but just kind of reading the history of the Black Panthers and some of these movements, again, with some distance, it makes me wonder if perhaps, like, if, if the Black women in leadership would agree with her. And I know, like, I've heard from, um, I've heard Black, like, surviving Black Panther women talk about this. And of course, they say there was, you know, we had to kind of break down some men and get them used to the, like, Elaine Brown talks a lot about this, how, like, some men gave her a hard time in the beginning, because she was, like, one of the, the she's, like, the first female president or something of the Oakland chapter, if I'm not mistaken. And they had trouble taking her authority sometimes, but eventually they did. Um, and a lot of women were running things in these chapters. And so it just makes me kind of wonder if, if she's thinking more generally or, I, I don't know. I mean, if I, I guess my question is like, is it, is it fair to say that the women were the ones who were, or the, I should say the men who were the ones who were engaging in this, this kind of patriarchal manhood and not the movement as a whole, once again, like I said, to kind of act against systems that were harming them is this idea of, was it like fire meeting fire? Um, and I also, last, last point, I just kind of wonder if her portrayal of, um, I guess the, the portrayal of the patriarchal manhood being at the top, again, does it sort of obscure the work that many chapters did in with regard to having women as the main leaders, not only in the background, but in the front. Um, and some of the like actually revolutionary approaches to um, womanhood and women's rights by these groups. Is she missing? And maybe she's just thinking about a specific chapter or like anecdotes that she heard, but I'm curious, what you think about that and like maybe if I'm missing the mark here but I'm, I'm wondering if if maybe she is not thinking holistically about the black power movement because she just seems to think in this piece that it was very violent and and overly patriarchal and I don't know if I would necessarily characterize it entirely in that way yeah I think uh, the fire meeting fire part is one of the things you said that's particularly stuck out to me in that like I, from my studies, as limited as they are, uh, what I picked up on was that there was somewhat of a shift from the early civil rights movement of basically, you know, hey, these are the promises America made to the people that live here. You need to live up to them. And this is how you're not doing it. And so this is what you need to do towards into the 60s and throughout the 60s where it was, okay, we need a power structure to be developed to to act as a countermeasure towards this other power structure that's oppressing us. Right. And that, in that, like in that kind of movement. And I think, I think that they're probably, and from again, my studies that there was some issues in some instances and in some uh, cases of essentially the kind of uh, like uh, replication of these dominating uh, structures in an effort to create uh separate power structures and i think 
that you point out some uh, also important aspects is that there were women in these struggles that were having these fights and that they weren't always losing. Like, so it wasn't as if right. it was just that, <clears throat> but that they, that this was an ongoing kind of struggle. And I think uh, perhaps she's uh, like, I, it's hard to say it wasn't there, you know, and like you mentioned, you know, having some distance and then also like, uh, I'm sure not wanting to reinforce uh, various tropes about black men and stuff that there may be a more gracious remembrance of uh, the moment than perhaps how it felt in that time in that mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. while you're experiencing it. And so like, uh, I think uh, that uh, I, I think that she's articulating something that was definitely something that was experienced uh by several people but or by many people in in those moments but i think that you know it's a limited amount of text and so i think like i mentioned that there was these conflicting forces and also there was a shift in the movement per se to uh to create power structures rather than to uh, uh simply kind of uh request reforms from the existing power structures or demand reforms from the existing power structures. Uh, and so I think that in that moment that there has been, and I think we still see it to this day in the creations of new movements where uh, there's an imitation of power structures as we understand them and as we've interact, interacted with them throughout our lives, rather than a reimagining or a new imagining of uh, how to, how to create an oppositional force without imitating the negative aspects of the force that we're opposing. Right. Definitely. And she would argue that, you know, the way to do that is with love, right? <laughs> like she would say like the way to, to, the way to counter those forces is instead of replicating them is to like put the love ethic at the top, right. To prioritize that. And then through that love, you're able to create an alternative, right? And I think that that aspect of her argument is actually really interesting and like strong and something maybe worth exploring further in general, mm -hmm. like not just in this recording, but in like my life <laughs> as a whole, right? Like, am mm -hmm. I to, to question ourselves? Like, are we as people who are encouraged by revolution, are we leading with a love ethic or who I guess would want to see revolution, right? Are we leading with a love ethic? Are we leading with something else? Um, and, you know, it's also hard to question that, right? Because we're all influenced by our society and we're products of it. So even what we see is as love, I guess, would all, I guess I'm wondering what we see as love and compassion and caring and things like that. Is it also in its own ways kind of reinforcing or um, replicating social norms that might be a problem? And, you know, one of the things that like, I don't know, I've been struck by is this constant fear of like black or native um, retribution, right? It kind of makes me think about this discussion a bit because people are, you know, people who get really up in arms about affirmative action or any sort of plans to like give back to black people or when they start seeing black people and other people of color like gaining leadership positions and they get really angsty about that. Um, and people kind of have to say, or even like when we talk about, you know, land back and, and decolonization and whatnot, um, the response is always this question of like, are you going to try to kill white people or are you going to like take white land or whatever? Like there's this constant fear of, and you see this in like South Africa and Zimbabwe <laughs> and like throughout the continent where there's this constant fear of like, oh no, the colonizers will lose what they 
think is rightfully theirs. And then they're going to become somehow, I guess, second-class citizens, despite the fact that they like own all the wealth of the country and like still are in power. Right. Like, but there's this angst, mm-hmm. angst and anxiety about losing power. And we see it acting out in all colonial countries, right? Like the U S as regardless of whether people want to deal with this or not is a colony. And it operates like one, because you still see these struggles between colonizers or people deemed colonizers right by virtue of of not having come here by you know by force as slaves or having come here or been here as indigenous people but you know I think that there's this constant fear that like we're going to get them back and people live with that fear and then act out on it and that's why they're constantly afraid of people voting and constantly afraid of people getting positions of power and constantly afraid of people like doing like going higher than them in academia or whatever. Um, And at the end of the day, like most of us aren't worried about white people. Like we're not trying to actively oppress white people. We're like trying to survive, right? We just want to make it where we need to make it so that we can get on with our business. And I think this fear is, I guess the reason I, I ask about it or I bring it up is like, I think it's something that she is writing against as well, right? And she's saying like, when we have this, this, ideal society that's or movements that are formed with love at the center we're not thinking about retribution we're not thinking about necessarily enacting violence towards the groups that have harmed us but trying to find a way to better incorporate them into a society or a revolution or whatever that actually is going to make change because i think there is you know there are some groups that are just geared towards this idea of retributive violence if not violence and economic or something right they're they're kind of you do see some of that um and you do see language that kind of feels more like they just hate all like blanket hate all xyz groups all white people in particular in this case but and i understand that anger and i'm not one to be like y'all are wrong (laughs) but at the same time i just i don't know i wonder if there's if if i guess how do I put this on the other side of that coin though? I wonder if in saying this, you know, she is thinking about the, the people who are trying to do something that may be retributive and that may be geared towards violence towards the other, not just violence internally within their group, but potentially violence that goes beyond that. She doesn't say it explicitly, but you have moments in the piece where it kind of feels like she's also thinking about that. Um, and worried about whether or not these movements that are based on anger and retribution, if they can survive without that. And I think that's what's kind of the subtext as well, because for her, her reading of some of these Black power movements seems to be one that they were, she seems to argue that they were often geared, or um, sorry, motivated by this kind of getting back at the man, taking what's ours, um, engaging in violence, and that that was not enough um, to sustain itself if and when we did get the things that were technically ours or were promised to us or whatever. Yeah, I feel like she kind of sets it up also as a reflection or a manifestation of the what she says calls the quote the festering and suppressing the possibility that this collective grief would be reconciled in community even as ways to move beyond it and continue resistance struggle would be envisioned essentially that like there's uh, this collective trauma on 
on on black societies in general in the American life, and that a failure or an inability to be able to reconcile that grief is part of also what drives this uh, this uh, desire for some sort of revenge or that type of uh, understanding or organizational kind of structuring in that like if you've been so horribly wronged and it, you, you're left with either the nihilism that she speaks to specifically, or I would say, you know, this kind of vengeful uh, approach towards the situation that the only, that the way to victory is to enact that violence against the, the person that's doing it to you. And maybe that uh, causes a, a realization or maybe it just prevents them from being able to do it for you anymore. But regardless, you've uh, alleviated that uh, oppression to yourself and without the love ethic to remind us about <clears throat> why and how all these interconnected aspects prevent us from realizing our own liberation so long as we're part of this domination or this system's domination. Uh, the, or uh, is that if we're unable to recognize or realize our own liberation while imposing these types of uh, systems of domination, that the way to break free from that is through a love ethic. And that, like, that makes sense to me, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm listening. I'm sorry. Oh, I just said, like, I guess that's, that's kind of where I was. It's just that, like, it makes sense to me that uh, a love ethic would be a countervailing force to avenge like a vengeful ethic or a dom like a I don't want to be dominated anymore so I'm going to dominate them type of ethic mm -hmm. and I think too like what you just mentioned um when you were talking just now it made me start thinking as well about like the sort of abolitionist aspects of this the undertone now I don't know if she herself identified as an, a prison abolitionist or was like anti-cop or whatever but I should look into that further um but it definitely gave me it kind of reminded me a bit of what we were reading about um, prisons when we read Angela Davis's work. Um, and it kind of, it has that, it, like this idea, as you mentioned too, about retribution and vengeance not being satisfying enough, right? And like coming to terms with that and recognizing that and like love being what leads us. It, and and there's, a, there's this like super spiritual aspect to her writing as well in this text. She mentions spirituality a lot even if in a secular sense, I kind of, right. Um, but I think it's, it's important to, to think about those undertones too, because ultimately, for example, if let's say someone kills a family member of yours and you murder them, you might feel good for the few seconds you watch that person lay dead, right? But it doesn't bring back your loved one and it doesn't make the situation better. And you have a sense of relief for five seconds, but you don't have anywhere to go from there, right? Like that's, that's the climax, that's the end. And it makes me wonder too, like if we think about our societies and, and prisons and modes of punishing others and things like that, you know, is it enough to, to lock people up or to do the death penalty or whatever? And does that really do anything for our society? It, it just, I don't know, I, I found her piece to be, and especially what you just said kind of sparked that thought too, about it kind of being a, a text that could be used in support of um, prison abolition and the end of policing as we know it and things like that. Um, 
just as kind of a side note, even though I, I am myself still grappling with some of those things. Cause I'm like, sure. Like put rapists away, you know, like if, F, if Epstein, for example, were still alive, I would be like, yeah, he belongs in jail forever. And like, maybe you should have something else done to him. You know, you have that impetus, like in your mind, you're like, this is what needs to be done. But it's also a matter of like constantly asking ourselves, is that enough? And does, what does that do for the society as a whole versus just their victims or just the one person who did the bad thing? Um, And I, I guess I would ask myself then, you know, where that also gets tripped up though, is that when we're talking about prison abolition, things like that, and, and what I just mentioned about like the, the punishment not being enough to really fulfill any societal, like larger societal goals or whatever. Um, I ask myself though, if you're thinking in terms of retribution as a wronged racial group, right? So you're a racial group who suffered from imperialism, colonialism, racial violence, et cetera. Does your act of retribution in a larger organizational sense, if that were ever accomplished, although I don't think it can be like the, like, poor black people are not going to ever like inherit the government or something, right. Take over everything and start from scratch or natives, native American people, indigenous people are not ever going to be able to like take this country by storm and like overthrow everybody and start from scratch. I mean, maybe, um, but at, in the current state of affairs, no. And so the question becomes if that ever were possible though, is not their retribution or their acts of retribution, are they not themselves not only an act of love, but in undoing and uprooting these systems that have harmed us and getting rid of the people who benefited from and perpetrated them, is that not, is that, is that truly an empty act? And does it not perhaps actually, actually satisfy the needs of that community and the needs of like the greater good of the society? Now, again, just for like anyone listening to this, I'm not advocating that people go out and murder white people or do anything like that. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm talking like purely in That's terms me. of like, yeah, like, just to be clear, right? Please don't get any idea. And especially again, to our white listeners, I'm also not saying that. My point though, is that if we're thinking about like anti-colonial movements, right? And maybe I should put it in the past. That might be a better way of looking at it. So, you know, I study anti-colonial movements going on in Southern Africa in the sixties and seventies. And they were in many cases, actually killing white people. You see this in the Haitian revolution. You see this in, you know, many revolutions that are anti-colonial, right? They were actually killing their slave masters in, in, in Haiti. They were actually killing colonizers in Angola and Mozambique in these places, right? Do we then, can we then look at these situations and say their violence, their anger and their retribution was actually towards a much larger systemic uprooting of the powers that oppress them. And thus that act of retribution was revolutionary and was motivated by love for their people and was motivated for like clearing a society of the things that were the elements that were oppressive um, in order to lead with a love ethic for their people. These are, you know, it's super abstract what I'm talking about, but I I'm kind of wondering then is that acceptable? Like, does that, does that, fit into this because it's not it's not about like person-to-person victimhood anymore it's more about societal wrongs and victimhood as a society or as a people you get what am i making sense like i don't know if i'm making sense or not but yeah i mean it it is an it's an important question i think to 
to ask is, can these seemingly vengeful acts be actually revolutionary acts of love in the interests of freeing people? Thank you, like, Richard, yeah. for better <laughs> saying what I tried to, I struggled with for like 30 minutes just now. <laughs> oh, it's a, 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 like, um, like what comes to my mind is like John Brown, like, you know, it's like, were those acts of love or were those acts of vengeance? And I mean, honestly, they, they strike me more as acts of love, really. Yeah. Like as violent and as horrific as they might have been, like it was like when you read some of the text, it's like, oh, you know, there was a at least uh, the 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 <clears throat> workings of what could be a profound love for this fellow human, like and just seeing that humanity sparked such like sparked that and it, it was mm-hmm. built in, in in recognition of others humanity, not in the dehumanization of the the villains you know right. and i think it's it's a it's a fine line to walk it's very easy to just to 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 shift from you know a valorization of the love and humanity of the people that you're acting in the defense of to uh, a dehumanization of the people that you're uh, acting against and it's like uh how how like how much humanity remains in people as they uh, facilitate and enact these uh, systems of violence is uh, another question that is worth interrogating and understanding and, and investigating, you know, and I think it's something that people have to do. One of the things that I've learned through all of these readings and uh, general and one of the realizations that I had, and I think it's just apt to point it out now, is like I had come into this thinking, oh, you know, there's a right way to solve all of these problems. And I just need to figure it out. I just need to learn about it. It's out there. And it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> like, yeah. A lot of these questions are still being struggled with. And there isn't a right answer per se. There are working answers that are better than others. And that address aspects that others don't. It's like, But there isn't, at least as far as I've encountered so far, some sort of holistic, you know, five page thing that you can read. And it's like, oh, this is how you get free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your like, kid. No, I, <laughs> that there's a lot to this and so like that like i think sometimes we come to theory looking for a simple solution and sometimes it leaves us with just more questions and that's the point and i feel like this is this has some of that in it and and like investigating what we know and mean by love and uh to get to the piece back to the piece a bit uh she does talk about like the commercialization of love and how that is how a lot of us have understood love uh, through most of our lives is through a transactional capitalistic kind of understanding of what love is and how it can be uh, navigated. And we, we see that constantly, you know, like to me, one of the things that comes to my mind uh, is the Cardi B offset relationship is like, those are clearly. <laughs> wait, 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 who... wait, 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 slow it down. First of all, how do you even know about this? all right continue i'm sorry keep going richard just like it's just like that to me it just like as i don't i'm not gonna say i know everything about it or anything but it just it strikes me as people who are not familiar with what love even is and so they're like you we're seeing people on a massively public stage try and navigate and understand this uh through in the midst of a capitalist hellscape like this is and so like that i i feel like and we've seen it with other, like, I, I would say with other rap relationships where the, it's about, like, buying goods and mm. services for each other. And that's the demonstration of love. 
Yes. Like, I, let's pull. Let, I'm no. going to go straight to oh, yeah, the text, ahead. actually. So it's page three. I'm just going to read this section so that people know where you are, uh, what you're talking about, um, and they can find it on their own. So page three, it says um, contemporary songs at the time it was written, like Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It, advocate a system of exchange around desire, mirroring the economics of capitalism. The idea that love is important is mocked. In his essay, Love and Need, Is Love a Package or a Message? Thomas Merton argues that we are taught within the framework of competitive consumer capitalism to see love as a business deal. And like, that reminds me, speaking of Cardi, right? Like, doesn't she have a song where she's like, I don't cook, I don't clean, but like, I get this from my man or whatever. And Mm -hmm. it just, again, like you said, it kind of shows it as an exchange of actions or goods or behaviors or whatever, um, or even the kind of, capital that a person's appearance can earn them right like if your wife Mm -hmm. or husband is hot primarily wife right that it kind of knocks you up a notch um in your social capital right um and so i think yeah that's a good the point that you raised about about her discussion of love and like kind of understanding love as it operates in the mainstream as this exchange is really important to our discussion yeah and that's not to like uh to to belittle anything going on it's just like it's just to me it, it's tragic to see people yeah. like have to go through that in a such a like massively public way like that it, like i'm not i i'm no master of love or understanding love but like <laughs> uh the idea of having to do that in public it, it, it it's daunting and so i think that it's important for us as a culture society generally to recognize and like she also points out uh hooks does about that there's clearly this people know that something's missing when they're going out and buying all of these you know self-help books or books about love or books like people are no they recognize something's missing but they're not they don't know what to how to fill that hole and it's it's it's, we're taught uh, religiously through capitalism that there's a capitalist solution to it and that is counterintuitive if nothing else yeah, I think that's important. And I hope Cardi B and, and or Offset are listening. Cardi B might be listening because she's she dabbles in <laughs> in left stuff here and there. Uh, so Cardi B, if you're listening, please read Bell Hook's uh, essay. Um, Love is, is the practice of freedom. It may help you and Offset. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that, first of all, I appreciate the pop culture reference and I'm glad you brought it in because I feel like we need a little more pop culture around here every now and then um, to kind of have contemporary examples of what we're talking about. It definitely helps. Um, And I actually, I want to have, I feel like we need an episode to talk about Cheer, the show Cheer, which I don't know if anyone is watching, but if you're hearing me right now and you're interested in talking about the politics of Cheer, especially racial and economic ones, um, send me a message and I will have you on the show. especially if you're a leftist of color and you watch cheer, um, hit me up. But anyway, I think it's, yeah, I had, I I think that that observation that you made and like you're expounding upon what she writes here about the commodification of love or like the capitalist kind of reduction of what love means is really important. And I think dominates our understanding and why it's often cheapened, right? Like when you talk about love in revolutionary spaces or whatever, it does seem like it's kind of silly, you know? Um, It seems trivial to kind of 
focus on that. At least I would imagine it would be, you know, people would be like, we've got other stuff to do. Like we're trying to like bring down the government or whatever, bring down like these, these systems or frameworks or what institutions or whatever. Um, and to talk about love feels out of place, but as she says, and as you reiterated, it's because the idea of love that we have is, is built around these hyper-capitalist notions of what that means an exchange of sorts, as opposed to a mutual respect and care and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think that's that's a really important um, thought, Richard, and I appreciate you bringing that in. Um, I guess, you know, I mean, it's a short piece. It's only six pages, really five and a half, right? Because like half of the bottom part or the, the sixth page is like questions for um, students, if you all are reading the version that we have. But yeah, I think that there's there's even though it's a short piece, I think there's a lot to get out of it. And there's a lot for us to kind of keep in mind as we're going through things ourselves in these groups, or um, if we're listening to podcasts, or if we're engaged in activism or organizing in some way, to remember that um, love should be central. And again, a non-capitalist reading or understanding of love. But also, as she mentions, you know, I think that this, she talks about the impoverishment of the spirit in black life um and that she says that we can collectively recover ourselves through love um and and you know she she also mentions like these ideas of she says here quote when i look at my life searching it for a blueprint that aided me in the process of decolonization of personal and political self-discovery i know that it was learning the truth about how systems of domination operated that helped learning to look inward and outward with a critical eye. Awareness is, I'm sorry, I'm on page four. Um, awareness is central to the process of love as the practice of freedom. Whenever those of us who are members of exploited and oppressed groups dare to critically interrogate our locations, the identities and allegiances that inform how we live our lives, we begin the process of decolonization. And if we discover in ourselves self-hatred, low self-esteem, or internalized white supremacist thinking, and we face it, we can begin to heal. And I think I really like that part as well, because it, goes, it kind of is a nice way to encapsulate like what we were talking about throughout today's episode. But like this idea and some of the stuff we talked about before the episode as well, like how dominant um, white supremacy is and capitalism to the point where even loving ourselves becomes an issue, right? And like loving our fellow like members of our group or whatever group you belong to becomes difficult at times um, because it's so dominated by these outside forces and institutions that shape the way we think of ourselves. Um, and if we could lead with self-love in, in the large, in the much larger part, respect for ourselves, care for ourselves, self-esteem. Um, you know, if, if we truly fully saw ourselves and recognized ourselves as human beings, would we be better about these things? And would we be better in organizational spaces about prioritizing um, the needs of, of people as opposed to the individuals uh, at the, at the top? I don't know. I think it, I think it's, I just think it's a really, as, as much as I have some questions about aspects of it, I think it's a really good piece and one that is kind of timeless um, because as you said before, like we're still dealing with some of these issues and it never is settled, but it's certainly, I think, a point of guidance that we should keep in mind. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, the internalized white supremacist thinking that leads to various forms of self-hatred is a very critical aspect of it. And like, 
investigating, interrogating, investigating, and like look digging into that in a way where we can actually a- approach ourselves in a loving way gives us the opportunity to love others. Like it, it becomes very difficult to love anyone else if you can't love yourself. And like, there's so much societal pressure to not love yourself if you're part of one of these marginalized or oppressed communities that it becomes uh, appealing in many ways to suppress your 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 unis in order to fit into a larger, less oppressed uh, group that has some sort of social capital or power within the society. And doing that is counter-revolutionary. It is, it is in opposition to the, the ostensible goal of getting liberation, getting free, not just for yourself, but f- because for everyone, because any, like, people being oppressed anywhere is a threat to people everywhere. And I think that acknowledging, as he says, the, the reality of both individual and collective is a necessary stage of personal and political growth. Like, we really have to, like, acknowledge how those uh, societal forces impact the very nature of the, the construction of our own identities. Yeah. I mean, and most of the time, you know, Richard, whenever you say things, I don't have anything to say back because like the perfect, perfect summary, perfect analysis. It's always like so deep. I just want to let it sit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Richard. Yeah, Richard. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> it's like I got my lighter up. Um, <laughs> or my cell phone nowadays, people, I'm so old. I'm like thinking of old concerts where people have their lighters and now people just put their cell phone up. Um, I'm an old millennial, guys. Um yeah, I think, I think though that like, I don't know, we talked about a lot for this essay and I don't have anything else to add. And I think what you said was like the perfect closeout, unless you had something else that you wanted to add or another area that you wanted to take our discussion. Um, let me know. I, I think that was just about it. I'm just looking over quickly to see if there's any quotes that I had that sure. stuck out. And speaking of love, while you're doing that, I just wanted to mm-hmm thank everybody um all of our patrons that have hung on i mean i know we've lost some people because of the just the like dire straits people are in financially i understand that giving us a dollar or five dollars or whatever you were donating um is a lot and can be like twelve dollars a year it might sound might not sound like a lot but it can be a lot um if you're struggling and so we just want to thank those of you who have contributed financially but who also even if you can't contribute financially have shouted out the podcast or told other people about the podcast quoted us on twitter or whatever um we appreciate your support and continuing to listen to follow us and engage with us online um yeah but i just wanted to say that because i feel like sometimes you know, some people do like these long form thank yous for their patrons and they have like their names and all that stuff. I don't put people's names just because sometimes I know it may sound weird, but sometimes donations, people don't want them, don't don't want to be shouted out. Um, so just know that I'm thinking of you and I care and appreciate, um, really appreciate what you all are doing to help us sustain this project and to keep the podcast episodes and everything we do free. So anyway, Richard, take it away. Uh- I guess one of the last things I thought was important uh, that I did definitely want to touch on was that she mentions that love is a choice and it's not the default, you know, just we're kind of brought up and assume that however our parents teach or treat us is love. However, the people around us that are supposed to love us, treat us is supposed to be love. 
And that's not necessarily the case. Love is a choice. And uh, it's about more than just the commodifications or just the material, but also about the spiritual, emotional, and the overall well-being of people. And so it it's not just about providing or that kind of aspect. It's, it's a more holistic experience. And so uh, I think that's worth thinking about. And then also uh, just appreciate all the people that are out there that are choosing love. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. We appreciate them uh, because we need more of it. You know, like there's so much cruelty and so much violence and so much hatred. Um, and while I think sometimes the language around love is cheap, you know, agreeing with the hooks um, in some, to some degree here about the commercialization of love being frustrating. And even within activist circles, you know, when you hear things like love is love that like don't interrogate the politics of relationships or whatever, there are definitely some questions that I have about the sort of cheapening of, of what love means. But I appreciate that she's trying to remind us that there are revolutionary aspects of love, if not love itself being a revolutionary act, um, or an aspect of revolutionary acts and something that we need to um, put at the center of our work and not at the, the background or as an afterthought. Um, and yeah, I, I, I didn't have anything else to add. I appreciate your thoughts here, Richard, as per usual, as per always, actually. Um, and yeah, I didn't have anything else to add, but I do want to encourage people to read it. It's really short. It's five pages, as I said. Um, it's going to be in the show notes, of course. It'll also be on our Patreon page if you want to check it out. Um, and check out Bell Hooks' books in general. I mean, I think that, you know, from what I have read, she's a very compelling writer. She's very clear and concise. Um, and while I don't, you know, I think some stuff that she has gotten notorious for is unfortunate. Um, you know, like with the, she was attacked by the Bayhive, like Beyonce people, because she said that Beyonce's feminism was basically an embodiment of capitalism, which I agree with. Um, but, you know, there are, there are many aspects of her work that that's worth exploring that I would like to continue explore going forward. And that would encourage others to look into as well. And not just to like, take what you see on social media and run with it, but actually look at the source as per most of the things we read, right? Like, I feel like we have been we have a history of kind of reading things that get discussed in pop culture, but aren't necessarily fully fleshed out. And we try to do that here with the Reading Revolution series of Left POC. Um, so with that said. Uh, just quick one last thought. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Just, Go ahead. Uh, just I, when my research, I came across a, a little clip of an interview from Bell Hooks talking about when she met Paulo Freire as a student. Oh, and nice. They like the group that she was with had tried to like preclude her from uh, approaching Apollo about uh, his, <laughs> his work because she wanted to challenge, basically she wanted to challenge the idea, like kind of the masculine focus of his work and, you know, a lot of he pronouns and stuff and like mm. he and man and all that kind of thing. And she wanted to offer feminist critique and the group that she was with tried to stop her, but Apollo welcomed her in it's like this is exactly what I'm talking about nice and so like I think the the type of engagement that we had it, it, like for anybody that's like how could you not just take bell hooks as gospel this is like I think she would very much welcome this type of uh interrogation and like in engagement with her material and to the degree I don't mean to speak for her in any way but like my understanding from her from my research is that people uh engaging with this work is uh paramount and so yeah. like definitely read it and uh, find more and continue to 
get and look into this information and to get a better understanding of all of this because it, it's we need it sorry <laughs> no don't apologize and please send me that clip so i can include it in the show notes so people can check Absolutely. it out uh that's so interesting i love it when there's like this historical overlap with people that we're reading it's like so i'm a huge nerd but i love that stuff you know like when i learn about what people were reading too. I love learning that stuff. Like, and it's really hard to research that sort of thing. Like it's hard to find this stuff out, but if you can get access to like personal archives and stuff, you get a chance to see like what your revolutionary faves were reading and like what inspired them as well. And it's really kind of fun to like know that they met and talk. That's really cool. Um, so with that said, before I close out, I just want to remind people um, that I'm still giving out mask packets on my personal accounts. You can go to at Muse Wendy on Twitter. Um, if you need N95 masks and you're in financial need, uh, especially if you are disabled, elderly, pregnant, uh, if you're immunocompromised in some way, if you're an outward facing worker, any of these groups, doesn't matter your racial group, doesn't matter your gender, none of that. But if you are, you know, you find yourself, you, you consider yourself part of these groups and you're in financial need of any sort, please, 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 please do not hesitate to send me a message. Um, and I will send you eight 3M certified uh, N95 masks. They're not fakes. They're the real thing. I get them directly from 3M distributors that I work with. Um, and I will send you a packet of eight N95 masks, as well as some surgical masks to help you prolong the use of your N95 safely. And I'll also give you um, some information about how to clean, to keep your masks clean, how to care for them, um, and how to wear them. So please, please, please do not hesitate to reach out from, to me. I'm mailing packets basically daily at this point, um, some weeks every other day, just depending on what I have going on, um, but definitely fulfilling these throughout the day. So send me a DM. You will get a generic response from me because I'm fielding a lot of requests, but I always follow up with a Hey, got your, got your message, got your address, whatever. Um, and I also provide tracking. So I send them through the U S postal service and I get tracking numbers for everyone so that you can know when your package is coming. Cause I know that can be kind of difficult if you're working outside the home or even if you are working at home, but you have, uh, people who are dropping stuff off and you may not know what's coming and I don't want them to get stolen or lost or something. So anyway, that being said, please, please, please feel free to reach out if you're in need financially and you need um, high-grade masks. So on that note, thanks everyone for listening. Um, thank you for hanging out with us for this hour to talk about bell hooks and love as the practice of freedom. Definitely check out the reading and continue to check out the podcast and the project as a whole. And if I should mention, by the way, if you all have things that you would like for us to discuss that are written by leftists of color or that inspired leftists of color, feel free to, to send me a message um, on Left POC and that's at Left POC on Twitter. And we'll take a look and talk about it because we're always welcome to suggestions for things to discuss and read. I mean, Richard and I have our base of knowledge, but we learn from y'all and we appreciate the suggestions um, when you make them. And so please, if there's something that you would like to hear us do a deep dive into and talk about, um, send it our way and we'd love to do that. So um, Richard, did you have any last comments or anything else you wanted to add before we close out? I just want to thank everyone for everything, including and especially you for all the work that you're doing. And you mentioned the mass thing, but then also just everything. Just a pleasure to be a part of all of this. Thankful. And as always, I always say this, Richard, 
I do not pay him to say this. Um, <laughs> he's just really nice. <laughs> so thanks, Richard. I appreciate that. You're like making me blush over here. I really appreciate it. That's very nice of you. Thank you. Um, and yeah, again, like wholeheartedly seconded in terms of appreciating everyone who's listening. And these are really tough times, guys. I mean, I'm just going to keep it real. It's not easy right now for anyone, unless I guess you're a billionaire and you're like holed up in your huge mansion and don't have to worry about the pandemic, but it's rough. Um, and I know that people are really going through it. We're entering, you know, we're in year three, basically of this, um, unexpectedly for me, I didn't know I'd be, it's like, if I could talk to myself in the past, I don't think I would have imagined having it go on this long. Um, but I hope that y'all are doing okay. And as okay as you can be, and just know that like, we understand and empathize and we just want to try to support people through whatever means we can. Um, and if, if one little thing can make your life easier for a day, then I want to fulfill that. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think it's just really important that we support one another, especially where we see government and our society kind of breaking down as we speak and not fulfilling the needs of the people and not supporting one another. Those of us who can should, um, and do the do the best that we can through our means um, to do that. So, yeah, thanks everyone. Keep keep holding your heads up and try to do your best to just stay strong and know that you're not alone. Uh, and with that said, thanks so much for listening and have a good one. Bye.